Hello, everyone, and welcome to Easy Medicine, a podcast designed to authentically engage medical and pre-medical students on their journey to becoming a physician. As an aspiring physician, I seek to provide insight gathered from my own experiences as a student, tutor, and coach, as well as others in the field to make this incredibly complex adventure a unique, fulfilling experience. Together, let's make medicine easy. For the question of the day, we have a 60-year-old patient presenting to the clinic with no complaints. They are actually here for their annual physical exam. The patient is what he calls himself to be, a baby boomer. And you say, have you ever been tested for hepatitis B? The patient says no. And you say, well, let's do it. So you order a hepatitis B panel. Now, if this patient did have hepatitis B, and let's say chronic, there are some conditions that can occur from the hepatitis B over a long-term setting. Which of the following is associated with hepatitis B? Is it A, polyuritis nodosa, B, giant cell arteritis, C, granulomatosis with polyangitis, or D, leukocytoclastic vasculitis? The answer will be at the end of the podcast. A lot of topics that we talk about in medicine and social media in general, you'll see the word balance. And balance is so important. And the last few guest speakers I had talk about balance. They talk about physical activity balance, balancing extracurriculars. And I have more planned to talk about their balances as well, because everybody has different things that are significant to them. Some people really want to balance their family life. Some people really want to balance their gaming life. Whatever it is, balance is important. So for the topic, I'm actually going to zone into third year and a little bit of fourth year and balancing shifts from the academic setting into a clinical and academic setting. Now, for the first and second year, typically, you're not doing too much academic work, a little bit here and there with your primary care skills, a little bit here with the OMM um, if you're a osteopathic physician in training. But there's not a lot of patient care. You definitely have the SPs and who doesn't love doing those because, you know, somebody comes in and they're like, chief complaint, my toe hurts. And you're like, um, okay, so like, tell me more about that. And they say, so you're not going to ask me if I have a cough? And you're like, oh, oh okay, my, that's on me. That's on me. Um, so those days are over and you're actually asking patients about things that are pertinent um, and you're starting to formulate. What is it that is important in this conversation to help me diagnose? So as you move to the more clinical setting, it's pretty intense because it's real now. Now it's not just a textbook. It's not just a manual. It's not just an article. It's an actual patient sitting in front of you and saying, hey, I'm here for help. Or, hey, I'm here for my checkup. Or, hey, I'm here for a vaccine. Whatever it is, it's real life now. And so it can be tough for some people because now the responsibility is real. So when you're reading the question stems in the first and second year and you're like, 25-year-old patient presents with yada, 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 you know, maybe they had a heart attack or something and you're like, oh, that's terrible. Answer is beta blocker. I don't know. Now if that actually presents in real life, it's not the same. It's not just written word, spoken language. It's real. And it's something that unfortunately many of us face for the first time, loss of life or a really challenging illness. So on top of that, 
in this clinical environment, we're also finding a way to study. Now, I want to say, in the world of academics, the first and second years hit hard when it comes to academics. It is straight to the books. It is straight to the study resources and the lectures and doing learning objectives and drawing out pathways and all that good stuff. But it doesn't necessarily disappear in third year. You still have to study. You have to prepare for your shelf or COMAT exams. So in the new setting of clinical environments, you have to find a balance. Your balance is shifting. You have less control over your days. You have more mandatory things you need to be to. But what you'll notice is you have a lot more time. So I'm going to talk about that. We're going to go through all about the third year experience. And if you're in your third year, welcome. And if you are getting ready for your third year, get ready. And if you're a pre-med student wondering about clinical medicine and how we get trained in it, I hope this is a little bit helpful for you. So starting out, how is it academically different than first and second year? First year and second year, if your exams and quizzes are every other week like PCOM, that is very tough. You know why? Because you're studying constantly. You finish an exam and you're like maybe feeling three seconds of relief until you realize, oh wait, two days from now I'm going to have another quiz. Or, oh no, there's another exam coming up in a different class. And that is what's constantly happening first and second year. You're just balancing out all these different exams from all these different classes. And maybe you have a pass-fail system. Maybe you have an A through F system. It's stressful. And you start to kind of lose the insight of what you're doing. You're just kind of in the midst of the grind and thinking like, okay, I just need to figure out what's high yield. I need to figure out how to get through 30 lectures in two weeks as effective as possible. Do I not go to class? Yada, yada, yada. But you also have a lot of control over that time. Most places, lectures are not mandatory. So you don't have to go. You can stay in your house. The only mandatory things you may have to go to are labs like PCS or OMM. Or maybe for OSCEs as well, whenever you have those. But it's much less demanding on where you need to be and when. Now that changes in third and fourth year. You are required to be at your rotation site at a certain time, prepared for the day. Sometimes they want you to be pre-charted and ready. Sometimes they are okay with you just showing up and saying, hey, I'm a medical student, I have no idea what's going on. And it's all preceptor and rotation dependent. But what is different in academics is you're only taking an exam at the end of the rotation. And for some, that's four weeks. And for some, that's six weeks. And in some of the rotation blocks, you actually get like two to three months to study. So just to break it down on what exams you have to prepare for in your third year. And this is coming from my school. I know other schools are different. We did four-week blocks. I know that there were some MD schools locally who did six-week blocks. So this is coming from a perspective of four-week blocks. You'll hear the terms COMATs, and you'll hear the terms shelf exams. COMAT exams are what DO physicians take or DO physicians in training take. Shelf exams are what MD or allopathic training physicians take. There is very little difference except the fact of who writes the exam, okay? So in the exams that you will be taking, you will have family medicine, 
typically four to six weeks to study for that. You'll have internal medicine. Now that could be anywhere from two to three months, maybe even more to study for that exam. And that is because you'll be doing subspecialties along with your IM block. So for example, I did um, neurology and cardiology as two subspecialties in my internal medicine block. So I had about three months to study for my exam. For MD allopathic physicians, I believe that neurology has its own shelf exam. So you may have four to six weeks to study for that one. Pediatrics is one month. OB-GYN is one month. Surgery, typically it's two rotations, so either two months or 12 weeks. And that is because you'll do a surgery and a subspecialty surgery. Depending on your school, you either do both rotations first or you do general surgery, take the exam and do the subspecialty. From what I've understood, most of the time you do both rotations before the exam. The next is psychiatry, which is a month. And then for some schools, emergency medicine is in the fourth year. For our school, emergency medicine is in the fourth year. For others, it's in the third year. So you may have emergency medicine as a one-month or six-week one six block. And then for DOs, we also have an OMM COMAT exam, and that is typically a four-week block. So just listening to that, six weeks, four weeks is a lot longer of a time period to study. So just doing calculations here, you technically, thinking about it, should have much more time to study. However, where's the difference in that? The difference in this is what comes into play with the mandatory requirements of where you need to be and when. So let's take family medicine. Say your shift is 8 to 4. That means from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., you are on site doing clinical medicine. Now, this doesn't mean you're going to be seeing the patients the entire time, and this is where time management is so helpful. So from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., maybe you see patients from 8 a.m. to 12 and then 1 p.m. to 4. Sometimes you're going to have no-shows. Sometimes you'll have patients that the doctor says, I, you know, I don't feel comfortable you seeing this. This is a little bit too intense, or this patient doesn't feel comfortable with you. I just want you to sit out. These are perfect opportunities to take advantage of. So while you're in the clinic from 8 to 4, find in that time moments for you to study. So while I'm on family medicine, whenever a patient canceled, whenever I had a lunch break, or if I had any type of break, I would pull out UWorld, or I'd pull out TrueLearn, or I'd pull out Anki, whatever I thought I had time for, and I'd do a couple of questions. And I'd try to find questions that were specific to things that I saw in the clinic. I'll never forget the first diagnosis I ever made that was correct. It was in my family medicine rotation. It was the very first patient that I saw. And coming from an osteopathic school, I felt very comfortable with doing an MSK exam. And so my attending said, hey, I want you to go check this patient out. They're having some pain in their buttocks region, and it's radiating down their leg a bit. And I said, okay, all right, so I'll go check that out. Now, in my brain, I'm thinking of all the different types of pain that can radiate, especially in that lower back region, right? I'm thinking, oh, maybe it's a radiculopathy. Is it a myelopathy? That'd be kind of scary. Um, is it a nerve root compression? Maybe it's sciatica. And interestingly enough, when I went in there and I did my examination, I came up with the diagnosis of sciatica. 
And when I came back to the physician and I told her, we went and did the assessment again together and she confirmed that. Now for me, what an amazing experience to be able to tie in something that I've read in a textbook or maybe learn in a lab and saw it in an actual patient. It became so real. But on top of that realism, it taught me why the academic parts of medicine are so important. So it inspired me to be useful of my time management skills because I knew that at the end of a shift for eight to four, which is not terrible, I might be tired, right? I have to drive home from the clinic depending on how long your drive is. I wanna go to the gym, I wanna eat dinner. By the end of that, it's maybe seven or 8 p.m. How much time of that is really going to be spent effectively studying? So be conscious and cognizant of the time that you have on your rotations. If you are at a rotation site where it's super busy and there are a lot of residents and medical students, typically you are going to have more downtime. Use that downtime effectively. So to recap, my first thought is with rotations, you have much longer periods of time to study. You may have four weeks, you may have six weeks, you may have a couple months, right? When it comes to internal medicine, I had about three months to study for my exam. Use that time effectively. It is so important to engage yourself with the academic material in the clinical setting because it becomes relevant, it becomes way more engaging to learn, and it's exciting when then you go and you see someone who may be experiencing that condition. So that is the first tip. Time management skills, being effective with your time on site. My second tip is being thoughtful of when you schedule your rotations. So usually at the end of third year, most, if not all, people that are in their third year will take their step two or level two exam. This is a great time to consider, well, what is on step two, level two? Now, I will say personally, it is so nice to take an exam where there is not as much biochemistry. I was thrilled to see the comparison between step two, level two, and step one, level one, where there was that biochemistry component. This exam is so much more clinically relevant. It's asking you, what is the next best step? Patient comes in with X, Y, and Z. What is the next best step? It is an exam engaging you to think like a doctor. Step one and level one, there's a bit of that, but not nearly as much as step two, level two. So I think when we consider planning out, and you won't always have this choice, but when we plan out our schedule, I would highly recommend the topics that are going to be the highest yield or the highest amount of content on the exams should be in your second half of your third year. So if you have choice to put IM, family medicine, surgery towards the second half of the year, I know it will be grueling and it will be tiresome, but when it comes to studying, it will be worth it. I have talked to so many people who have had IM as their last two blocks before their exam, and they said it was so helpful for studying because it covers so many topics. You go through endocrine, pulmonology, cardiology, neurology, right? They're all the aspects put together. And if you also have surgery somewhere in the back end, those are really tough concepts. 
The reason surgery is tough for medical students is in your educational first and second year, there's not a whole lot of surgical topics. You may learn of things that require surgery, like an appendectomy, but there's never an indication of, okay, well, do I get a CT scan? Do I, do I do an ultrasound? Are exam findings enough? This happens in your third year. You start to learn, what is the next step? Do I order a CBC? Do I get a CMP? Do I get a specific labs? Do I want to test for syphilis, gonorrhea? Like, what do I do next? Should I ensure this patient's not pregnant before I give them a CT scan with contrast? Like, what is important? And so when you're in your third year, I find it to be best to truly put those tougher ones at the end of your year so that when you go to study for step two and you will only have maybe a month to two months to do so, depending on your schedule, you will crush it because you will have more recently seen a lot of the high yield concepts tested. So my second part of the advice is, if you can and you have control over your study plan or your schedule for third year, I would highly recommend putting internal medicine and surgery towards the second half of the year. We are encouraged to study much harder when there is something associated with it, like an exam. So for the rotation, some people, what they do is in their second half of the year, they will put their electives that they know there are no exams because it's almost like a break. But remember, the end of the year is the time for your board exams. So it is not a break. It is so much better to go in there and crush that exam because you just did two of the toughest rotations. All right, so second piece of advice, try to think about your schedule. My third piece of advice is regarding the time that you have that you didn't quite have in your first and second year. Now, I just talked a lot about things like, oh, well, you know, I got home at 7 or 8 p.m. Now I don't have any time to study. I have told so many of my first and second year students, you are going to see how much time you get back in third year. It is exponentially much higher than in first and second year. So in third year, you have way more time to spend with yourself, get back to things that you love to do. I talk about the non-negotiables in another podcast, but you have that time. Now, how is it possible that you have time? Like I mentioned in the beginning, you have about four to six weeks to study for these exams. So with that time, that four to six weeks, there is only a specific topic you are learning. And in that topic, there are only so many things that you can be tested on. So for pediatrics, there is an age range, right? You are going from zero to 18 typically for questions. So anything outside of that age range that could have a diagnosis is not going to pop up in peds. You're going to, yes, have newborns versus pediatric things to think about, but you're not going to have things in adulthood per se. Now, what does that do? That really gives you a start and stop point of your studying. It gives you a much greater confinement of the things that you could possibly be tested on. So I would say to you, think about this. In four weeks, how much pediatrics can you learn? Are you going to learn all of it? Absolutely not. But can you learn the high-yield material? Absolutely. You're going to be seeing vaccines all day 
every day on pediatrics. So you'll learn that vaccine schedule. You're going to see a newborn evaluation. You may even get to go to the NICU and see how NICU babies are taken care of. You are going to watch a birth. You are going to do developmental assessments. So you'll learn the developmental stages. These are things that come with the clinical time you're spending. So be conscious of the time you are in the clinic. If you do not want to go into whatever field it is that you're rotating on, that is okay. And it's also okay to let the preceptor know. But what you should also let the preceptor know is, but I want to learn this well. I want to learn about the protocols that you take as a pediatrician. I want to learn how a C-section is performed. I want to learn about why we need to perform hysterectomies. I want to learn these things. I want to learn in surgery when to use a robotics machine versus an open surgery versus doing an X-lap. I want to know these things. And when you engage the preceptor with this, you will learn high-yield board material all day in the rotation. So when you come home at 7 or 8 p.m., you don't have to sit there and feel bad about yourself that you can't stay up for another three hours studying foundations because you just spent the last nine, 10 hours in the clinic doing it. So I want you to think about that. Think about and consider, even though four weeks, quote unquote, to study for an exam, you are spending all day, every day learning that material. So don't stress if when you get home, you're too tired to do questions. You're too tired to do your Anki. This is why weekends are there for makeup. And the best thing is, most of the time you get so much done during the week, you don't even have to use all of your weekend to study. So I talked about sample schedules before, and I'll tell you about one that I've created with a student recently. Now, this student was also feeling the stress of, oh my gosh, I get home and I'm tired. I don't want to study. And I said, that is perfectly fine. Our goal is every day in the clinic, try to get 10 to 20 questions done at some point during your lunch, if you get a no-show, if you have some downtime while the attendings are writing notes, 10 to 20 questions. And just see what are they asking? What are the topics that I need to learn? Now, what that did for this person is at the end of the day, they knew not only were they spending all day doing this medicine, they did questions as well. So I want you to recognize it is okay to feel stressed that you may not be spending as much time sitting at the desk, reading Anki cards, reading note cards, reading lectures. Third year is different. All right. So that's the third piece of advice. The next piece of advice is what should I really do to prepare for the exam, the academic shelf or COMAT exam? Questions are key. I've said this from the first and second year in those beginnings, and I will continue to say that probably until the end of time. Questions are key, and especially for third-year exams. These exams, as I mentioned earlier, are asking you what is the best next step. So you need to see every type of variation that they can ask you so you'll know the algorithms by heart. Will I say I know every algorithm by heart now in my fourth year? Absolutely not. But what I want you to do as many questions as you can before your exams so that those algorithms are ingrained and that you are ready for the exam when it comes. So let's think about perhaps diabetes management in the hospital. They will give you on your TrueLearn, UWorld, ComQuest, whichever question bank you use, 
like 50 different questions pertaining to things that happen to people with diabetes. DKA, maybe a type 1 diabetic presenting for the first time, comparing that to hyperosmolar, hyperosmotic syndrome. They will give those scenarios. Okay, so how do you know what is the next best step? Do I give potassium first? Do I give insulin first? Do I give them fluids? Do I do nothing? Do I get their electrolytes? Like, what do I do first? You need to see the scenarios. When you see the scenarios in the questions, you will feel way more comfortable and confident when it comes to the shelf exam. So my goal for you is to have all of whichever question bank you have access to, have all of those questions completely zeroed out by the time you get to your exam. Now, it may look very difficult when you're looking at the IM question bank for UWorld. I think there's like, I don't know, 1,200 questions. But remember, you have like two to three months to do that. So you have time to get through those. And I want you to get through those because you will feel a million times more confident when you sit for that exam. So when it comes down to it, really studying, questions are key. Now, what can you supplement with? I've heard AMBOSS is a really great resource for especially third-year clinical medicine students. I've never actually used the application myself, but it does have integration into Anki, and I've heard the articles are really great for helping with clarification and providing algorithms. If you have that resource, I think that's great. If not, I would pick one resource that you want to use for your foundational learning. This would be online med ed, this could be boards and beyond, this could be sketchy. Whatever you really, really liked in your first and second year, I would say go ahead and try and do that again for your third year. If you cannot afford those resources, I want you to realize it is okay. It is not a make or break. Truly, if you do the questions, you will be okay. Now, I would supplement those questions with maybe Anki cards that are free on the web, like Anking or Zonki. Um, the Cheesy Dorian deck for uh, step two and the Comat slash shelves exams are really, really great. I've found them to be incredibly informative, incredibly helpful when I was studying, and they've really helped give me some foundational information when I was learning. So questions are primary. Supplement your secondary with one of those resources or Anki if you love it. Or if you don't like Anki, make learning objectives for yourself or make the confines for yourself. There are many, many uh, resources out there that have what can be tested on on these exams. So check those out and create that for yourself and then write down your notes so that you have an idea of what can be tested on. Now, my fifth and final suggestion is when we're considering the balance, and I'm coming back to the balance, in your rotations, I want you to think about Am I present right now with this patient? Or am I thinking about when I'm going to leave to go study? So my last suggestion is presence, mindfulness, thoughtfulness. Remember, we are not just training to be good test takers. We are training to be physicians. We are trying to understand what it is we want to be when we grow up and who we want to take care of. So when you are on your rotations, pay attention to the way you feel. When you got off your surgery rotation, did you miss it? Did you wish you could go back into the OR, slap on those scrubs, and get back into the first assist position? Did you miss that? Did you miss 
delivering babies? Did you miss checking out kids for otitis media? What did you miss? What are you missing? What are you loving? For psychiatry, did you miss talking to people about their mental health and working with them through their medication management struggles? What rotation is speaking to you? Maybe there's many. Maybe you love working with multiple different rotation groups. It is okay, but in this time, this is the time to understand what do I want to be when I grow up. It is a hard decision to make. It is not something you have to ultimately make until your fourth year, but it is good to start really thinking about what spoke to me. Did the EKGs pop off the page and tell me what heart condition I was working with? Did I love sitting in the dark room with the radiologist looking through brain scans and checking out if there were fractures or not? Did I love working in the hospital in the acute conditions, being called when they needed me? Or did I like the chronic management? Did I like being outpatient, talking to patients about their preventative medicine care? What was it that truly spoke to me? Now, when you think about that, it not only makes you more decisive on your future, it makes you a better person when you're working with patients. It makes the humanistic response come out of you. It humanizes your experience with that patient. And it reminds you why you became a physician in the first place. The first and second year does not have a lot of patient care. Unless you are engaged in volunteer opportunities, you are getting really little experience face-to-face with patients. So in this third year, be cognizant when you're in the room with the patient. How are they feeling? What is their occupation? What did they go through in their life to get them to this position right now? What is it that you're doing for the patient? Could you do that for the rest of your life? Do you like a particular setting? I want you to think about these things. So that fifth piece of advice is to really, really be present when you're on your rotation. Remember, academics are important, but being a great, well-rounded human being is just as important. So with these five suggestions, these five pieces of advice, we can really take a different approach to third year. We can slow down take back some of the time that we feel like we lost in our first and second year. We can be effective in our study strategies, focusing on things that we really struggle with. We can re-engage our non-negotiables, go back to the family, go back to the gym, go back to the things that we really missed out on. We can take more time for ourselves. We can use the clinic time to our advantage and study while we're there. We can set goals for ourselves that are reasonable so that when we come home exhausted, we know it is okay that I did not get through 100 million questions today. Set these goals for yourself. Think about these suggestions. Be present in the clinic. Be present in the hospital. Be present with your patients. Be present with yourself. And with these suggestions, I truly believe we can make medicine a little bit easier. For the question of the day, we have a 60-year-old patient presenting to the clinic with no complaints. They are actually here for their annual physical exam. The patient is what he calls himself to be, a baby boomer. And you say, have you ever been tested for hepatitis B? 
The patient says no. And you say, well, let's do it. So you order a hepatitis B panel. Now, if this patient did have hepatitis B, and let's say chronic, there are some conditions that can occur from the hepatitis B over a long-term setting. Which of the following is associated with hepatitis B? Is it A, polyuritis nodosa, B, giant cell arteritis, C, granulomatosis with polyangitis, or D, leukocytoclastic vasculitis? So hepatitis B and hepatitis C are commonly shown on both the step one, step two exams, and they will ask you about some of these extrahepatic manifestations that can occur. Usually, they give you a patient who has a history of this, and then they're like, which chronic infection may this patient have? So in this case, the correct answer is polyarteritis nodosa, and this is one I've seen so many times. Um, you will most likely see this question some point in your career. Hepatitis C is has a vasculitis associated with it, and that is the one called leukocytoclastic vasculitis. There are a lot of other things that these are both associated with, and just to quickly list them off, hepatitis B is associated with aplastic anemia, membranous glomerulonephritis, and hepatitis C is associated with essential mixed cryoglobulinemia, an increased risk of B-cell non-Hodgkin lymphoma, ITP, autoimmune hemolytic anemia, membranoproliferative glomerulonephritis, sporadic porphyria cutanea tarda, lichen planus, and an increased risk of diabetes, and an increased risk of autoimmune hypothyroidism. So if you are going to use this as a study strategy, what I recommend is remember what hepatitis B does, and everything else is most likely hepatitis C. Thank you all for joining for this episode of the podcast. I really do appreciate it. My goal in life is to help as many as I can. And I know how much of a struggle it is to go through medical school and the pre-medical process. And I wish to be a guide for all of you and learn a lot from you as well. So thank you again for joining.